speaking of risk and opportunity, um, I think countries that figure out that they should be geopolitically promiscuous, they are going to be the winners of the next decade. So I really like what, for example, Indonesia is doing. Welcome to Applied Geopolitics, the new podcast series from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. I'm your host, Roger Baker. One of the criticisms long pointed at the field of geopolitics, and for that matter, much of political science, is that it is not measurable. It deals with too many qualitative factors, and most attempts to quantify are either overly generalized, overly narrow, or are the result of somewhat arbitrary numerical arguments. Today, I'm joined by Marco Papik, partner and chief strategist at Clock Tower Group, a former co-worker at Stratfor, and the author of Geopolitical Alpha. Marco has spent the last decade applying geopolitical analysis to the markets, bridging the gap between the qualitative and the quantitative, and putting his analysis to the test. Marco, it's great to have you here. It's been a long time. Hey, Roger. It's, it's been a very, very long time, and I'm so glad to be speaking with you again. Well, thank you so much for joining with me. I, I want to spend the first time talking to you a little bit about how you approach geopolitical risk. Um, and then after that, let's talk about some of the key uncertainties that we're seeing in the world. Um, obviously, you've taken this, this field and moved it into something that forces you to be accountable um, and accountable in a, in a fairly rapid time frame. Geopolitics often has these nice long arcs that by the time you come to the conclusion, uh, nobody remembers what you said 10 years ago anyway, so it's okay. You're in a very different field. Um, how do you take these broad concepts of geopolitics and geopolitical risk and apply them to something that seems much more tactical and, and of daily import? So that's, that's a really critical question, Roger. And I think I would start off by saying that there are two things that Stratfor really taught me that have helped me become um, more applicable and um, relevant, or as you say, accountable. First and foremost, this idea that humans are really trapped and that they are really, um, you know, they are, they are at the mercy of other forces. Now, at Stratfor, obviously, those forces are very geopolitical. Uh, the immutable variables of geography, demographics, uh, slow-moving forces that take decades to articulate themselves. Um, and all I've done really is expand the toolbox of what variables constrain policymakers. That's, that's pretty much it. Uh, adding to that toolbox that Stratfor has, you know, basically been focusing on for 40 years, adding to that toolbox and uh, the things like boring domestic politics, the financial markets, um, the makeup of one's economy, and how that may also be relevant for policymakers. Uh, some public opinion as well. Um, that obviously is part of the domestic politics. Once you expand the tool of variables, you can be a little bit more uh, short-term in your forecast, and you can focus on a little bit more of the mundane issues that don't necessarily matter for the long stretch of history, would be relevant for financial markets. And I think that we've seen this uh, over the past uh, you know, two decades, really, where politics and geopolitics have become much more relevant for financial markets, uh, that, that idea that humans are constrained is relevant to predicting financial markets as well, because policymakers ultimately have to make a lot of decisions. Um, and so I would say that the first thing is just, you know, I, I took what Stratfor taught me and just modified it, opened up the toolbox a little bit more, introduced other variables, and then 
voila, you have a toolbox. You have a framework, um, which I call the constraint-based framework. The second thing that I think uh, I learned at Strive for, and this was now very long ago, I'm sure that your systems have changed and the way that you do things are a little bit different, but I remember this and this, I can, I can tell the frustration in your voice too, Roger, when you ask me the question. Like, you know, 15 years ago when I was there, we were doing our report cards. There was always that one analyst that was always right. You know, there was always an analyst that never got anything wrong. And that's because when you make political forecasts, you can drive an aircraft carrier through their assumptions. For example, let's say that I think at the beginning of the year, in the decade forecast, that Turkey will experience political volatility. By the end of the year, I give myself an A+. Whether the deputy finance minister resigned or whether there was a coup d'etat in the country, right? I mean, both are political volatility. So, you know, like, check, I got it both right. And I think that the accountability that you ask me about really comes from the fact that I'm in the financial markets. And, you know, accountability is did the lira go up or down? <laughs> like, there's, there's, did you get the currency call right? So, what I would say is that. Once I moved away from making political forecasts and geopolitical forecasts, and once I entered the world of making forecasts based on, you know, prices of securities, you are by definition then accountable because those are numbers. And you can't really, I mean, some people can, but like you can't really kind of massage the numbers. Right. So, so. You know the the idea of accountability. I think is really critical. The you know your your point on um, how how do you define instability or or problems within a space? Right. There's a huge range, and when you start getting into the application of this, it really matters who's the end user, how are they going to use that information, and what does it mean for them? Because they have to make decisions on it. H- have you seen in other ways um, how you approach things? shift and differ when you look through a lens of the markets versus, say, a lens of policy or a lens of pure raw prediction? Oh, absolutely. That's that's a really uh, important point that I want to get across. Um, a lot of times we think of geopolitical risk as sort of a big G, large case G, geopolitical risk. And there's some objective measure on that of that geopolitical risk. which we will just assign uppercase G. Let's just do it. A lot of policy folks, think tank folks, people in academia who write op-eds for a living, they focus on that large case, uppercase G. And they say, well, it hasn't moved down or it has gone up or it has remained stable. But when you're actually dealing with financial markets, what you care about is the geopolitical risk premium associated with financial assets, which is a lowercase G. And lowercase g actually collapses when uppercase g is flat. So take Ukraine as an obvious example of this theoretical idea. You know, a lot of clients of mine are saying, well, Ukraine, the war will last forever. And my retort to that is, well, the Korean War has lasted forever. It's still going on. You don't wake up every morning wondering what, you know, the Korean War is doing because of that war. So there is a moment where the objective measure of geopolitical risk, which is important, it's interesting, I'm not diminishing its relevance, obviously for policymakers or for writing a really interesting analysis, all these things matter, 
But for the financial markets, what matters is its derivative, the premium. And the thing is the market gets desensitized, Roger, to a lot of things. Uh, it becomes, you know, like it takes some time to realize what are the, um, uh, the implications of a particular global situation or global risk. It learns what assets are going to be repriced almost instantaneously, maybe incorrectly, but eventually gets it right. And then it moves on. And so that's where this idea of desensitization is really important and why I think that a lot of the things that we're focusing on right now and that we're making uh, into really huge risks, eventually we learn how to live with them. And a good example of this is also 2014 annexation of Crimea. I mean, if you and I had been sitting around talking about the annexation of Crimea in 2007, 8, 9, 10, you know, that, that's, that's a really profound moment in, in European history. I mean, you, you have a piece of European territory, landmass, just being taken by another country. That hasn't happened since 39. And yet it happened. In 2014, the market freaked out for about a couple of days, a couple of weeks, and then it moved on. You know, and so that's, that's what I would say is the difference. The application in financial markets um, is different because the market learns to live with these risks. And, and you as a, as a geopolitical strategist in the financial markets then have to really have a different mindset. Because if you're focusing on the political permutations or the geopolitical permutations, you will miss and you will almost always be bearish, almost always be bearish on financial assets. And I see this a lot. A lot of folks have made the jump I've made. I made it 10 years ago. It's now sexy to be a geopolitical you know, analyst in the financial markets. And I see all this like kind of a bearish tinge to a lot of them. And I think that uh, you know, it just doesn't work that way. Markets, markets just recover and, and they figure it out. It's in the very name. It's easier to identify geopolitical risk than geopolitical opportunity. Mm, good point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and I think I think as you're as you're you're describing this, part of it is being able to move between the different geographic and temporal scopes and scales. Right. So so yes, there is a a fundamental change in the the structure of Europe with the Russian annexation of. Uh, the Crimea, and on the on the step back and look at the broad sweep of history, that has a certain implication. But on the day to day, once it's done and it's a set factor, um, it's now the new reality, and therefore things adapt and flow around that new reality. And they're not looking at that as everything has changed because it's not changing anymore. It's now static. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, you mentioned something very important earlier, which is that the end user really matters. The end user determines like your focus. My, 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 most of my end users are pension funds or sovereign wealth funds or, or hedge funds. And by the way, that presents its challenges because if you are a long-term investor like a sovereign wealth fund, you're going to really care about some of the things you're talking about, Roger, in terms of like the apocalypse changes, right? And phase shifts. They actually will care about that. If you're a hedge fund, you're going to force me to give you a, like a forecast that lasts one week or two weeks. So that does create a little bit of a problem in terms of how you're thinking. But they're all financial uh, agents at the end of the day. They're investors. If your end user is a corporate, you know, corporates will also have a way in which they want you to put together a forecast that has to do with their particularities, whether it's their supply chain of their inputs, whether it's their markets. Uh, that they might have, 
Um, but none of them really are thinking about it from a romantic perspective. I mean, I can tell you that, right? No one out there is, is wanting a romance novel um, or like sort of a, a war and peace. Um, and not that that's not important. I think it's very important to be rooted in traditional geopolitics of, you know, Mahan and Mekinder. I really do. I, I think you have to have a view of what the world is looking like. You have to have a view of where the world is going. But your forecasts have to be very much uh, determined by the end user. And I think you hit it, uh, the nail on the head there. So someone who randomly reads an analysis, you know, like a, like a retail consumer of an analysis, will not really understand what you're talking about. And I have that often when my wife drags me, you know, to like a party. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can imagine how, how this goes, Roger. And, you know, there's Marco in the corner. Oh, what do you do? Oh, I do Jubal. Oh, my God. So what do you think is going to happen? Ah, Ukraine doesn't matter. And it's just like look of shock in people's you know eyes. Like, wait, what? I mean, obviously, I wouldn't really say that, but as an extreme example, you know, you you might say something like, "Well, the market has already priced it in," and and then that that looks callous and looks crazy as a forecast. But it really depends on who who it is that's the end user of your research. Yeah, and then and and you know, as as we talk about this, there's both the desensitization. And then there is the hypersensitization, right? That that the media cycle can drive people to be so overly aware of the the extremely short immediate tactical without creating the context for it, right? Every time North Korea tests something, it's the end <laughs> of the world and we're about to go into nuclear war. Um, or the, the Ukrainians make an advance, therefore it's the end of the war. Or the Russians make an advance, it's the end of Europe. Um, there is, I think there's both factors that end up in playing in there. Uh, uh, so you use, I'm guessing too, you use these frameworks to be able both to identify, um, you know, and be able to recognize when the, the markets, for example, are desensitized, but also to be able to put the, the media volatility into its proper context. The media volatility is a huge part of this, Roger, for sure. And uh, I actually only recently joined Twitter. Uh, I'm a little bit of a Luddite, personally. Uh, and so I only joined it like March of this year. Um, and I got to say, I've never like been more successful as a, as a forecaster of financial markets than since I joined Twitter. So I can go against it, you know, uh, <laughs> speaking of the hysteria. Um, but like, I think the, the media does matter. And, and I'll give you an example of how it matters in, in a way where you, you and I have to be extremely sensitive to it as analysts. So um, Islamic State, at the end of the day, and I don't want to be callous and inhumane because a lot of people died. But at the end of the day, President Barack Obama was right. Islamic State was JV. Just because you put a Kobe Bryant jersey on doesn't mean you uh, play for the Lakers was his, you know, infamous statement, which ended up, you know, biting him in the behind because obviously a lot of people died and they ended up, you know, like conquering large swaths of Iraq. But at the end of the day, they were just a bunch of yahoos on pickup trucks with 50 caliber weapons in the, in the bed of their Toyota pickup truck. Right. We, we knew this at the end of the day, a couple of years later, no one's talking about them anymore. The problem though, is that the terrorist attacks in major cities across the G20 
And also their offensive, which wasn't halted because there was just a power vacuum in Iraq. Once, there, once that was resolved by the alliance between Iran and the U.S. effectively, they were done in a couple of weeks. But in that moment, the media hysteria made a big deal about the Islamic State. Uh, and connected the terrorist attacks to the migration crisis in 2015, which created this really interesting perfect storm, Roger, that ended up boosting anti-establishment forces, whether it was Brexit, whether it was the election of Donald Trump. A lot of the tailwind that really ended up mattering for the markets, for domestic politics, came out of this thing that, you know, at the end of the day, in the grand scheme of history, is a flash in a pan event. Like, no one's going to be writing about the Islamic State 100 years from now as a significant force of geopolitics. But in that moment, the combination of their success, which was idiosyncratic, and a combination of media, Twitter, hysteria about it, did produce some really interesting outcomes. I would say COVID-19 was kind of very similar as well. And I write about this in my book, um, where I basically kind of say, look, we as analysts have to start to respect the hysteria side of social media because we can be sitting in our sort of offices you know thinking about this from a very geopolitical perspective and then misunderstand that hysteria can get a life of its own and can be quite market relevant and policy relevant even if we think that the situation on the ground is not as bad as it is yeah there, there's a reason we have added society as one of our pillars of geopolitics here separate from politics uh, as its own is to be able to see that interaction and that intersection there um, and and the roles that they that they play and at times society or social perceptions leading political dynamics and at other times following behind them um, and often the two running at counter purposes to each other because they run at different cycles um, in in response or or in contrary to each other um, I, I want to give us a chance to talk a little bit about the world. I could go on forever talking about how to think about thinking, but um, there's some space to talk about what what does it mean and how do we look at it. And I know that both you and I have been uh, pointing out the, the realities of a multipolar world system and what that means and, and how that is not necessarily a, a stable structural system. It's not a Cold War system. It's not a hegemonic system. What do you see as some of the, the most salient features uh, of a multipolar world? What do you see as the most important implications going forward? So, yeah, I mean, uh, I think the, you know, this came to me in a bizarre way. I mean, through research, really. I, I was writing an analysis in 2017. Um, I've had a thesis since 2012 that Middle East was a joke that the risks emanating from there were basically on the decline. And, uh, you know, uh, I was focused on U.S.-China tensions. And by 2017, it was clear to me we would have a trade war and we would have a calamitous kind of confrontation. So I set out to write a piece that would, um, you know, basically predict how much time there was between the beginning of geopolitical tensions and the end of a trade relationship. So I wanted to quantitate, like quantify and give my investors a time limit. Like it's, it takes six months. It takes a year between tensions and the end of all trade relationship. And I started looking at 19th century data, uh, just leafing literally through books of, of, of data. Um, this stuff is not online. And I found something fascinating, Roger. I found that, you know, 
the geopolitical tensions between like German empire, which was formulated in 1871 and its enemies basically lasted for 20 years before they, before they stopped trading. And during that time, trade and investment went up between Germany and its enemies. And that was fascinating to me. And then I tried to explain why. So I dug through political science literature and found a lot of game theory work on this that was done in the 90s when political scientists incorrectly thought we were in a multipolar system. They missed the hegemony of the U.S. And a lot of the game theoretical work pointed out the explanation for why a multipolar system basically prevents neat bifurcation of the world on economic and, uh, you know, like trade and finance. And the reason is that coordination between allies becomes extremely difficult. And I think we've seen this over the past four years. The unique feature of multipolar world is not just that nobody's in charge or that frequency of conflict is higher. Those are all true. It's also that allies just don't trust each other as much as they do in a bipolar system. And the reason is very simple. In a bipolar system like the Cold War, the two bullies can kind of pop their own allies upside the head when they misbehave and uh, bring them in line. In a multipolar system, that becomes extremely difficult, uh, basically impossible. So even though the United States of America is clearly still the most powerful country, I think, in the world, and especially in the Western bloc of countries, clearly head and shoulders above everyone else, in relative terms, it's not powerful enough to enforce compliance with its own coalitions of the willing. So you have this coalition of the willing against China, which is paltry. It includes like Australia and a couple of other Lilliputian countries nobody really cares about. India is kind of in that coalition, but it's not in any other coalition. You know, it's thumbing its nose at the U.S. when it comes to Russia. But I guess with China, it's a little bit more in, uh, uh, on the same page. The point is the alliance has become much less robust. And that means that trade and financial flows with the enemy actually continue. Why? Because you're just afraid of losing market share to your own allies. Um, and that's what's happened over the last four years. Right. And as we see, you know, for for uh, middle powers, whether we want to use the term in, in, in the idea of the size um, or just in being squeezed between the, the larger powers, the, the multipolar system in some ways offers them more room to maneuver. Um, it's higher risk for them, but it's greater room to maneuver. And what we've been seeing is that, uh, you know, in a in a Cold War infrastructure, the the political economic and security dynamics of a partnership, all three are all, are aligned. And in a in a multipolar system, you don't necessarily have that tight alignment of all three. You can be sort of aligned on economic policy, but not on political policy. And and I think we see that stress um, tremendously these days in the in the structure of the European Union, where there's the assertion of unity, but clearly we're seeing very different national approaches to economic dynamics, political dynamics, internal social dynamics that are creating some tensions within what is supposed to be one of the centers of power of the global system. Well, I would say actually that this is a huge opportunity, right? So speaking of risk and opportunity, um, I think countries that figure out that they should be geopolitically promiscuous, they are going to be the winners of the next decade. So I really like what, for example, Indonesia is doing. 
Uh, I really think what India is doing is is brilliant. And I mean, I, I don't mean that from a uh, sort of subjective, like normative perspective. I mean, as an investor, I want to invest in countries that are going to tell United States of America to go take a hike. No, we will take that Chinese loan. Hell yes. Oh, you don't like it? Offer a better rate, right? And this is, this is the, how, this is the country that will win the next 10 years. It's countries that realize that they actually have opportunities as middle powers and that even not as middle powers. I mean, I've seen countries as tiny as my homeland of Serbia play this correctly. Um, United Arab Emirates um, has done the same. It's countries that understand that they now have the upper hand, that they are the bell at the ball, right? They don't have to sign any agreement that is deterministic, that aligns all three spheres, as you pointed out, Roger, eloquently. Like, you don't have to do that. You can pick and choose. You can be promiscuous. Countries that basically have decided that the world is bipolar, that they have to choose sides, they're the ones that are going to lose out. Traditionally, Singapore is the best example of this, right? Because it utilized its location its diminutive size didn't matter, and Singapore was successful because it was able to exploit um, competition. And and I think that as we go forward, because of shifts in the way in which we look at, at global trade, at commodities, at, at economic importance, at geographic importance, that the, the number of countries that have the opportunity to play this, this role between big powers and to play them off of each other actually expands it doesn't always have to be about one thing or another. You know, Indonesia has location and nickel, <laughs> um, you know, that, that yeah. make it really critical. Yeah. yeah and I mean, uh, you know, like I was uh, I was in an event recently in uh, in Latin America and I spoke to like a finance uh, foreign minister of a very, very small country, very small country, which is probably why I spoke to them, <laughs> why they spoke to me. Sorry. Let me put it this way. It's why they spoke to me. It was a very small country. I'm not trying to make myself sound cool. But the foreign minister told me, I recently went to Beijing. And I was like, really? What for? You know, what What was the purpose? So, oh, no, no, I just wanted uh, Blinken to see that I went to Beijing. <laughs> and I was like, ah, this country gets it. You know, like the purpose of the visit was purely just to set off alarm bells in D.C. because they knew that there would be nothing bad that comes of it. In fact, what would happen is the United States of America would say, like, well, you know, like, what can we do to help you out? And that's the difference between the Cold War and a multipolar world. In a bipolar world of the Cold War, the best example of how brutal it is, is the Suez Crisis, 57, where the United States of America basically went to the United Kingdom, France and Israel, said, look, we have a deal with the Soviets. You don't get to take the Sinai. Get out of Egypt. The United Kingdom said, hold on a second. We're a nuclear power. We're an empire. You can't just tell us what to do. And the U.S. said, well, cool story, bro. Then I'm going to crash your currency, you know, so get out of Egypt right now. Um, and it worked like United Kingdom, France and Israel tucked the tail between their legs and abandoned that adventure. Um, obviously, I don't want to make it sound like the bipolar system of Cold War didn't have promiscuous powers. There was the non-aligned movement. There was India. Um, there was independent foreign policy thinking. I mean, one of the reasons you had these pipelines going from Russia to Europe is because Europe um, didn't, you know, follow Ronald Reagan's advice and it did build the pipelines to the Soviet Union. So there was independent foreign policy and thought. But at the height of the Cold War, it was pretty brutal. You were either in one camp or you were on your own and that was not a place you wanted to be. Now you kind of want to be on your own. And that brings me to your point about Europe. You know, I I. 
I have a different view of Europe simply because every crisis we've had over the past 10 years has resulted in more integration. Maybe not enough integration, which is, I think, where you're headed, but every single crisis has produced more integration, not less. And there is a political consensus in Europe now amongst the median voters that they do want integration. And I think the way to think about Europe is just to realize that on their own, purely if they were to leave, if a country were to leave the European Union, on their own, they're far more exposed to the vagaries of a multipolar system. So their integration is out of weakness. It's out of fear. And fear and weakness are a very powerful motivator for integration. It's why the 13 colonies of the United States abandoned their original constitution, which was far less unitary, and then ended up creating the United States of America. It's why Switzerland, which is riven with with heterogeneous ethnic and linguistic conflicts throughout its history, you can look it up. They've had more wars between little cantons and little villages than like any place in the world almost. It's why they managed to overcome those differences because they were surrounded by very scary, very powerful political entities. And I think what's happening in Europe is while you are correct that there are definitely different approaches on on geopolitics and finance and economics, I think the integration or impulse is very strong because it's motivated by fear and their own domestic irrelevance as very Lilliputian you know, powers. Like Germany, if Germany was on its own, would it be more powerful than South Korea? I don't think so. Interesting. And and I've been uh, getting schooled on Europe by uh, uh, other analysts for a while now. So definitely um, worth taking a look at and uh, and trying to understand both the perception of, you know, how do how do we understand a Hungary that both plays one game, but obviously clearly never never has an intent to walk out of the union? And therefore, it may <laughs> yeah. not be the union that is that is the extreme vision of the of the 90s. But as you said, it becomes the place of refuge and security. Listen, Roger, I'll, t- I'll guarantee you to this. I will guarantee you something right here. One day, the European Union will cease to exist. All things end. But Budapest will be the last capital that puts down the flag. You know what I mean? They, they need that money more than anybody else. Maybe Romania needs it more. But but I think I think that we, we could overemphasize the, the Hungaries, the Czech republics. You know, we could overemphasize that. What I say when I say every crisis has led to more integration, like let's let's do a postmortem on the euro area crisis. How did it get resolved? Where an off balance sheet vehicle, the EFSF, became the constitutionally approved bailout pack, uh, bailout fund, the ESF. Let's do a postmortem of the uh, immigration crisis in 2015. A completely bureaucratic, irrelevant little office in Brussels called Frontex, where about 100 bureaucrats were making 150,000 euros a year and drinking wine from free-flowing taps in the commission cafeteria, which I've had the pleasure to enjoy. They literally give you a glass carafe and you just fill it up at lunch. It's amazing. Well, that sleepy little office suddenly became filled with armed border guards, right? So these, these are two examples of how crises led to deeper integration. And then COVID finally produced something that the euro area crisis itself couldn't, which is an EU um, debt issuing capability. It had existed before in the commission, but then they, they obviously stepped it up. Um, so I think, and finally, by the way, finally, just look at the polling. The polling is now at the highest level for European economic integration. So 
you know, like those are big picture kind of empirical examples of what crises have led. And we can stand on the sidelines and say, yeah, but Hungary, Czech Republic, or you can say, well, look, the trend is towards more integration. Let's explain why. And one thing that I think is a mistake of a lot of Anglo-Saxon sort of commentators, you know, because we, we, a lot of us in US, Canada, UK, we get a lot of the news out of Europe kind of refractor to London, which is a very Eurosceptic place, especially in, in terms of journalism. A lot of the mistakes is to hearken back to the early 2000s when EU bureaucrats ran around the world telling us how the euro was going to replace the dollar and Europe was the future. So they look at European integration with that 20-year dated view that Europeans are doing this because they think they're, they're, <laughs> they think they're going to win. And my, always, my, my thing I always emphasize is no, no. European integration is a product of irrelevance of weakness, of fear, and of Lilliputian middle powers realizing that on their own, they're absolutely lost in a multipolar world. And fear, I think, can overcome a lot of these kind of challenges. And it has so far. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see where it goes in the future. I'm open to all sorts of outcomes. But for now, I think I would, on the sort of a two to three year modest timeline, continue to think that integration will win over disintegration. Well, fascinating and a, and a great, great way of looking at it. And, and just so you know, I'm going to steal your term geopolitically promiscuous. Um, oh, please. Because I love it. Um, it's a, it's, a, it's a, great, uh, a great way to visualize uh, um, some of these countries and their ability to maneuver. Um, you know, we don't have a whole lot of more time. Um, I had one more question I want to throw at you if you have a half a minute to, to try to get at it. One of the things that we um, we look at a lot uh, is, you know, the, the there are uh, people who are geographic determinists, I will say, and I'm on a raging war against geographic determinism. Um, technology has a huge impact on the, the relative value of geography, um, as well as perceptions of distance and, and significance. You know, the you know, in, in an age of sail, uh, the, the Middle East was important as a land route um, and occasionally uh, a, a stopover. In the age of coal, things change. In the age of oil, it suddenly becomes tremendous. In a, in a green energy world, where does it fit? What do you see, you know, just throw it out. What do you see as the next uh, big geographical change based on evolution of technology? You know, I think demographics are going to matter a lot less. And I also think that uh, naval routes are going to matter a lot less. Um, so, like, I think sea, like sea lanes are going to matter a lot less as well. And U.S. could fall behind massively over the next two decades because the two things that it has is control of the sea lanes and, at least in the Western world, the best demographic profile out of there. Um, so I'm going to throw that out there. I know we don't have much time, so I would rather spend the rest of the time I have saying how much I freaking agree with you. <laughs> because uh, geographic determinism is basically idiotic. And I, I say that because just look at history. Look at freaking history. If you and I were in 1305, okay, we were, we've got our big like robes, you know, we haven't really bathed in a couple of months. We're sitting in some tower somewhere and we're talking about what's the next country that's going to do well. And I raise my hand and I'm like, hey, Roger, I'd like to write an analysis about Portugal. Can I do 600 words about Portugal? You would throw me out of the tower. You'd say, Marco, 
They're starving to death from the Black Plague. They've depopulated their villages and moved to the coast because they got to go fish in Greenland for that disgusting salted cod. No, you're not going to write about Portugal. And yet, uh, 150 years later, like the Vatican Church splits the planet between this impoverished, starving, plague-infested, Lilliputian country and Spain. And so that's why I think if you want to extrapolate what's happening right now into, into the future, you cannot use linear forecasting. If you're doing multi-decade forecasting, you for sure cannot linearly forecast geographical endowments because you don't know what's going to matter. And I think what's going to matter are new energy technologies. You know, new energy technologies could lead us to a world, especially if some of the kind of crazier things end up working out like fusion. Oh my God, whatever country figures out fusion, our children are learning its language. And it completely refracts and changes the way geography interacts. I mean, at the end of the day, the Mediterranean in Latin means in the middle of the world. And it was. The Mediterranean was the middle of the planet. Everything kind of rotated around it. Rome was Rome because it was in the middle of this. Today, it's a lake. You know, nobody cares what happens in the Mediterranean. Greece and Turkey could have a war. Their markets would ignore it. And so I 100% agree with you. There's so many examples throughout history of how geography changes due to technology, due to innovation, due to new supply routes, due to depletion of natural resources, the fall and the rise and fall of great powers. And there's almost never been a case where a great power remained a great power purely because of geography and natural resource endowments. In fact, I would argue that those who are naturally endowed usually get fat, lazy, and arrogant, and they stop innovating. Yeah, I'll throw out my favorite McKinder, democracies refuse to think strategically unless and until compelled to do so by some outside force. And, and, and I think you're right. The, I, I've used the idea of um, a, a Maslow's pyramid uh, for nations and the countries that are the most secure and confident and comfortable are the ones that forget about the realities around them. Yeah, and that's where, you know, if I was to make a long-term, like, forecast, I would say, let's look at Europe. Right now, industrials in Europe are priced at half the price of their American counterparts. Basically, your price, the market is currently pricing European industrials as if there is going to be deindustrialization in Europe because of high energy costs. But what I would say about that is America has had an electricity advantage over Europe for the past two decades due to natural gas and shale, and it hasn't gained any export market share over that time. And so what's going to happen over the next 10 years, Roger, is we're going to get the Brent price of natural gas. We will get an LNG global price. It will lower prices in the rest of the world, particularly Europe. It will raise domestic costs in the U.S., on top of that, Europeans are right now freaking out. They're running around with their you know, head on fire. They're going to have to be forced to innovate, and they will innovate because they're advanced industrial societies that already have alternative energy, and I include nuclear in that, at 32%. So when I think over the next decade, I want my entry point right now in Europe, cheap, pricing deindustrialization, pricing the end of history. And I want to lock that price in because I think over the next decade, that's where the energy innovation will actually come from. It's a great perspective. 
Well, Marco, I think we've run out of time. I really want to thank you for uh, joining me today. This has been a great conversation. Oh, it's been a wonderful conversation, Roger. And as always, uh, I always learn a ton from you. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Thanks for joining me today. I've been uh, talking with Marco Papik, partner and chief strategist at Clock Tower Group. If you'd be interested in learning more about geopolitics or what we do at the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, you can find more information at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Roger Baker. Thanks for listening.